Galatians chapter 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, my brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. It's great to see you. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. And especially if you are newer here, so like last six months or so, if you are newer to Trinity, we would love for you to come to this celebration dinner that you have been hearing so much about, hopefully. You've got a little insert in your bulletin, or maybe you got it on the way in. If not, it's on the back of the bulletin. But celebration dinner is one of the most wonderful, exciting times of the year where we get together. We'll have about a dozen people share stories of grace, how God is moving in their lives. We'll have a couple pastors that we are going to present. Cam and Joe are going to be sharing from their heart as they prepare to become elders in this church. We have Ozark Mountain Biscuit Company doing the dinner. Okay, there it is. Homemade desserts, the whole nine yards. It's going to be incredible. You don't want to miss it. So I really, really want to encourage you to sign up for that. There's a link on the back, not that you can click click it or something, but there's a link on the back of your bulletin. Um, So sign up for that. If you forget to sign up, just come anyways, all right? So if you forget, and if you're wondering, I don't know if this is for me, maybe it's just for like the members of the church, people that have been here a long time. It is for you, especially if you're newer. It's for you, all right? Celebration dinner, it's in like 10 days. We're good? All right. Now, on to the message. Let me tell you why I don't like iPhones. It's, it's on the list of things that I don't like, and I get that I'm getting older, and the list is getting longer, social media, YouTube, staying up past 9 p.m. My wife described to me what Instagram is now. They're like taking videos of themselves and text is coming up on the screen. I haven't seen it, but I don't like it, okay? So here's one of my problems with the iPhone. You've got an iPhone, 
and it's like two years old. It's paid off. And so Apple hacks into it and starts breaking it. So you go into AT&T, and you're telling them, I'm having these issues with my phone, and they look at it, and they're like, whoa, look at that thing. Look how old it is. That's like three iPhones ago. They're like, hey, Jimmy, come look at this. This is from before your time. And they're like, this model is basically obsolete. In six months with the software, this isn't going to even be working. You know? You're like, it's not working now. That's why I'm here. And so what do they do? They start selling you on the new iPhone, right? They're telling you about all of its features. They lead you over to like the little living room section. There's a couch. They bring you warm coffee. There's like a, there's like a muffin they bring you. They ask you about your passion in life. They tell you about how this phone is actually going to help you get in touch with your passion and bring it to fruition. And this is the kind of phone that the most sophisticated, advanced, intelligent people have. Just owning this phone says to the world that you know what you're doing. And so you don't care about any of that because you go to Trinity. But because it is more difficult to change from an iPhone to anything else, like it's harder than brain surgery, it's twice as expensive... You're like, just give me a new phone, all right? So they give you the new iPhone. A month later, you're back in the store. Because every time you go in a coffee shop, it's syncing with every other iPhone. You've got guys coming over like, hey, I love those pictures of your kids. You're like, I don't know how this is happening. You go back into the store, and it's like they never met you, right? You're like, this is going on. They're like, well, if you don't know what's going on, you must not be that intelligent. You might be more of like a Motorola guy, you know? You're like, can I at least sit on the couch? They're like, that couch isn't for you. <laughs> so it's like when, when they're selling you, they're, they're all in on you. They have time for you. They have space for you. But if they've already got your money, they've already got you under contract, and you come back in, you're, you're not providing them with anything at that point. And the level of service totally changes, right? You might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Galatians? One of the things that Paul is doing in our passage is is to reveal the true nature of these false teachers he's been talking about throughout the book. And he's essentially saying that, that iPhone salesmen and false teachers have something significant in common, and that's that they don't really love you, all right? They need you until they don't. They're, they're selling you on a product that, that helps them advance in their own goals in life. And if you work like at at and I'm really sorry. I just had to kind of come up with some kind of introduction. You're, you're safe here and secure in Christ. But what the, what the false teachers are doing, what, what so much of organized religion is doing, it's saying, come, come over here, listen to our, our grand teachings, see how we can fulfill all the needs of your life. See how we have these, these structures and practices and festivals that will tap into your need for, for longing, or rather your longing for satisfaction. We have everything that you need. But then a couple months later, a couple years later, the organized religion is saying, hey, why aren't you serving more? Why aren't you, why aren't you giving more? You should just be happy that, that you're here. Now, you might say that's a little unusual coming from somebody who's employed by, like, Christianity. But the thing is, the Christianity is different than every organized religion. That's what we've been trying to show throughout this series. Christianity is something entirely different. 
And so what Paul is saying is these false teachers, they're luring you in with these promises of satisfaction. They've got all these practices and these structures to cultivate your, your obedience, and yet they're actually doing it to serve their own purposes. They are not doing it in love. They're promising you freedom, but they're only enslaving you to their product. And so Paul is literally in pain as he's thinking of these false teachers trying to to pull his friends away from the beauty and the truth and the goodness and the freedom of the gospel. And he's he's trying to compel them towards a few things. He's, He's longing, he's in pain so that something might be formed in us as believers. There's actually three things, that we would be known by God, that we would be strong in weakness, and that we would be formed in Christ. And so the first one is that we would be known by God. We'll pick it up right at verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Now, we saw last week that the first seven verses of Galatians 4 is talking about our salvation as a, as a kind of second exodus, that just as God's people were led out of Egypt by the hand of God, brought out into a promised land where they were called sons of God, so in Christ we are led out of a slavery to sin and to the law, so we might enter the promised land of adoption as sons and gods, as sons of God. And so Paul is, is picking up on that, and he's extending that theme through verse 11. And now he's essentially saying, just as the Israelites were tempted to go back to Egypt as soon as they were set free, these Galatian believers are being tempted to go back to an old enslaving way of life. We said this back in the Exodus series in the spring. It took God one day to get his people out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get the Egypt out of his people. Now, there's a little twist here because what is it that Paul is so concerned about the Galatians turning back to? You know, if you realize the Galatians were, were a pagan people, they were involved in idol worship. That's what their culture did. And so they had been involved in all these, these immoral and, and debaucherous practices And yet that's not what Paul is concerned about. He's actually not concerned that they're going to turn back to that. He's concerned that that they're going to turn back to a lesser and more legalistic form of Christianity. His biggest concern is that they're going to turn to the law instead of the freedom of the gospel. What he's saying is that religious idolatry is far more dangerous than a secular idolatry. There was somebody who taught on this some years ago, and I love this story. There was a, a boy named Thomas who was born in the year 1225, and he was born into nobility, and he was like literally raised in a castle in Italy. His family had a castle, so that's the, the framework here. His uncle was a, a famous, uh, he was the principal of a large monastery, and so you think, you know, Catholic Italy, 13th century, this was somebody who had incredible social prestige and power. It was like religion and political power all kind of rolled up into one. And young Thomas was this brilliant child and student. And so at an early age, it was sort of decided that he would succeed his uncle in this, in this famous post, this, this religious, you know, powerful post. 
Thomas, however, in his studies, found the grace of God. He, he discovered God's grace, and he began to look at the religion around him and be concerned by it. And so at age 19, he actually fled away from home, away from his family, and he joined this little ragtag bunch of monks called the Dominicans. And the Dominicans have a vow of poverty. So he took this vow, a permanent vow, forsaking all of his family, riches, all of the wealth, all of the prestige and, and social status that came with his family. And so his family was appalled. They actually arrested him and enslaved him in their own family castle for years at a time. They would send up like young women to try to tempt him. And he would, there's a story of them, him chasing them away with like the poker thing from a fireplace, like out of the castle. He would not be tempted. He would not turn away from this grace that he had found. And so Thomas taught that there were four idols in life, money, power, pleasure, and honor. And Thomas taught that the most dangerous idol was honor. Another word for it might simply be prestige or popularity. And he said honor is the most insidious idol, especially when it's mixed with Christianity, because it, it becomes an unhealthy attachment and we become addicted to professional success or social popularity, to the praise and approval of others. He wrote that it so easily becomes the center of your life, in other words, your God, but you end up being enslaved to that need for honor and popularity. And so Thomas, uh, if you haven't picked up on it, this is Thomas Aquinas, a well-known theologian. But what St. Thomas was saying is what Paul is saying here which is that religious idolatry is far more dangerous than secular idolatry. The reason is because it's more hidden, it's, it's less obvious. People that are, that are following a religious idol think that they're drawing closer to God when they're actually moving further from Him. And this is Paul's fear for the Galatians. They're observing special days, months, seasons, and years, and yet their hearts are actually moving further from the living God. And he tells them that they actually have everything that they need. And that comes in verse 9. It's a key verse here. He says, you, you have come to know God, or better yet, be known by God. So he's saying all of, all of those religious practices and, and the traditions and the festivals, those aren't the things that are drawing you close to God. Instead, it's your knowledge of God, and it's actually not even that. It's God's knowledge of you. Now, every world religion has some sort of God or Messiah figure, a, a, a divinity source, and the, you know, the purpose of every religion is, is to follow that God, to follow the divine. Every organized religion has a desire to know its God, to know the divine. And yet only in Christianity is there a teaching that, that God knows us, like that we are known by the divine. And what Paul is saying is that the truest, most incredible thing about you is not your knowledge of God, but it's his knowledge of you. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, if anybody thinks they know something, they don't yet know in the way they ought to. But if anyone loves God, they are known by him. And so the fact that God knows us as his people, it means two things. It first means that God has sovereignly ordered our lives in a way that draw us to himself. 
And secondly, that God knows us means that he is in an intimate personal relationship with us. Again, the most important thing about you, if you're a believer, is not that you know God, but that he knows you. We've said before that the most important thing about your spiritual life is actually outside of you. It's not what you're doing. It's not even your faith. It's God's love for you, reaching you in Jesus Christ. And so our our knowledge of God will come and go. It rises and falls, but God's knowledge of us is perfect and it's eternal and it's unbreakable. And so the challenge for us is, is to cling not to what we know about God, but to what he knows about us. You might ask, how, how do I know? How do I know if I'm, if I'm embracing God's knowing of me and his loving of me? Well, often it goes back to that, that idol language that Thomas used. That we develop unhealthy, idol-like attachments to, to earthly things when we lose sight of how much God knows us and loves us. One of my favorite authors, Richard Loveless, he writes this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, they're subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant appeals they receive from their Christian environment about how they're supposed to live. Their insecurity shows itself in pride and criticism of others, They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealous and other sin grows out of their insecurity. It's incredible that we can actually be more insecure than people outside of the faith if we lose track of the love of God, if we lose track of his knowing of us. Tim Keller writes something similar. He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but on how unshakably his heart is set on us. If we begin to grasp how much we are known by God, we won't need to cling to anything else. We won't have these unhealthy attachments. They'll lose all of their enslaving power over us. And that, that frees us. That frees us to the second big thing, which is that we can become strong in our weakness. Verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, Become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Jesus Christ himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so beginning in verse 12, Paul is making a a personal appeal. These, These verses 12 to 20, they're leading to what becomes this pastoral sanction, what the Galatian believers must do. That's something we're going to cover next week in an Austin sermon. But the personal appeal is this. I came to you in weakness and you received me as a friend and yet what happened? You were, you were growing in Christ, but something changed when I left. And so there are themes of, of friendship here as well as strength and weakness. In terms of friendship, Paul is he's not holding his spiritual authority over them, but he's, he's coming alongside them as a friend. He's using, using a language of, of mutual friendship. 
He says, no, no accusation is being made, but remember how I came to you. Remember, it was because of an illness that I, I came to you and, and remained among you. And we don't know exactly what this illness was. That, that phrase can also be translated as, as a bodily weakness. Whatever it was, was some kind of barrier, though, to the Galatians. It could have been some kind of, of disability or something that was visibly wrong with him. And in that culture, physical disabilities were associated with being cursed by the gods. And so here we have this really unlikely spiritual leader. I mean, so often our, our public leaders try to, try to hide all of their weaknesses and anything that's wrong with them to present a, a certain, you know, image of strength. And yet Paul was not only not hiding his weakness, he was actually leading from his weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 is the, the most important passage on Paul's own suffering. He describes some thorn in his side, which he doesn't explain. It's a, it could have been this same illness. It could have been the, a physical disability. It could have been a sin struggle. It could have been what I believe is more of an internal struggle with depression or just general discouragement. And he doesn't tell us because I think we're meant to identify with it in general. Because for you, maybe you've never been, been persecuted or, or stoned and and like the being stoned, like Paul was stoned, not the other stone, but you've never been like persecuted, stoned, or you don't have a disability, or you don't have some major illness, but you've, you've got something, right? There's something in your life, whether it's an illness, something mentally, something emotionally, even spiritually, something about you that you dislike the most about yourself, something that you would change in a heartbeat, that you would be like Paul and, and pray boldly in, in at least three seasons of life for this thorn to be removed. And you wonder, why would God not take this from me? Why would he not lift this burden from me? This is what, what the Lord said to Paul in his moment of weakness in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul continues on in that chapter, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so as you think about that, that thing in your life that you would most want to change about yourself, that thing that you most want to hide from other people, the last thing that you would want to come out if you were in a position of leadership with people, what would it look like to actually embrace that thing? To use Paul's language, what would it look like to even delight in that weakness? Maybe this is something you've never even shared with other people. But if you look at what this thorn does in Paul's life, it says it humbles him, it strengthens him. In our passage, we see that it builds relationship with the Galatians. And in all this, Paul is making an appeal for imitation. He's saying, be like me. Embrace your weakness, your limitations, your inabilities. This is reminding us of Christ's own example in Philippians 2, that he lowered himself to the point of being human so that we now can, can lower ourselves. We can embrace weakness and seek the good of other people. There's a great quote by, by Henry Nouwen, a spiritual writer. 
He writes, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. See, being a Christian doesn't limit our suffering. It doesn't take the suffering out of our lives. Often it brings new forms of suffering into our lives. But God allows us to grow up in this this school of pain and hardship so that we can become more like Paul, but essentially and, and ultimately more like Christ. And that's the third and final thing, that we would be formed in Christ. Verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want, the false teachers, is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. In this whole passage, Paul is, is presenting two different paths, two different ways. The first one is about returning back to slavery versus remaining in the grace of God. And the second is the path of self-serving ministry as opposed to self-giving ministry. He's saying that the false teachers, their way is self-serving ministries, that you would be zealous for them. Or another translation is so that you will flatter them or, or build them up. He's saying the false teachers teach in a way that, that only serves themselves, whereas the apostles, Paul himself, is teaching in a way that builds Christ up. The false teachers are only serving and teaching and leading in a way that feeds their own idols. But Paul has, has sniffed this out, and he's calling us to expose it. Instead, self-giving ministry is the way of Paul's, the way of the New Testament. Now, this is for those of us who are, are pastors and spiritual leaders to, to understand that our job, our, our calling is to promote people's growth in Christ, that people would be, would be formed in Christ, that they would become like him, that they would become whole and mature in him, to even endure great pain that people might grow in Christ. Well, this, this gives shape as to why Paul is reminding them of his weaknesses, of his illnesses, of his disabilities, his limitations, it's because he knows that he's not their ultimate spiritual leader, and that's Christ. He is just a messenger. He's just a mouthpiece. He's just a very temporary representative, but Christ is the ultimate. That's why he says it explicitly in verse 19, the goal of his ministry is that Christ is formed in you. He doesn't care about having followers or fans he wants folks to be formed in Christ. And that's why he uses this childbirth illustration. That just as the, the mother is in pain for a while, but then her pain is relieved, the child can go on to live a healthy and, and independent life on their own. They can grow up and learn to walk and all those things. In the same way, Paul is in pain now because he longs for his spiritual t- children to, to go forth, to, to be free, to be independent, to stand and walk on their own. 
He says it like this in Colossians 1, Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ works in me. And then again in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory were being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the whole purpose of Paul's ministry. It's even the purpose of our whole lives to become like Christ, to be formed, to be transformed into his image, to be fully mature in him. And so, yes, this is the work of of pastors and leaders, but the New Testament says that every single believer is a minister of the gospel. Every single believer is a saint and a priest and a minister. And so wherever you are serving others instead of yourself, whenever you're working to see people mature in Christ, you are fulfilling the call of this passage. One of the things I love about this church is how many of you are serving. I mean, if you just think about it, we have like 45 servants just in the kids' ministry. Another 20 or so that are involved in worship and, and production. We've got 18 community group leaders. We have maybe a dozen mercy and missions people. We have women's ministry. We have prayer ministry. We have ministries I'm probably forgetting in the moment, not because it's not important, but just it's slipping my mind. But even if you eliminate the overachievers that serve in multiple ministries, we have like 70% of our people serving in the church. On top of this, many of you are serving in nonprofits and different service organizations all over the city. And on top of that, even in your day-to-day work, you're bringing Christ into the community and the marketplace. And so be encouraged every time you are consoling a crying child in Trinity Kids or teaching a fourth grader about the Lord. Every time you come in early to brew coffee or set up the sound system or prepare communion, Every time you're, you're giving from your own finances for the good of the whole. Every time you use your gifts and education to do good work in the community. Every time you openly share your weaknesses and struggles and limitations. You are rejecting the ways of the world and you are resisting that old selfish part of you. You're demonstrating the power of the gospel. And you're building a gospel culture in our midst. And so be encouraged, take heart. You are known by God. Your strength comes not from your giftedness and your intellect, but rather from your weakness. And Christ is being formed in you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You alone are our God. We will have no other idols, no other saviors besides you. We will look to the, to the attachments that we have in this life and, and seek to see by your spirit which ones are unhealthy, where we have given too much of ourselves. Lord, even now, would you expose those things in our hearts? And Lord, I know for myself how frequently I want to dismiss my own limitations, my own just physical illnesses or or struggles with depression or pain or whatever it is. Lord, would you teach me and would you teach all of us to embrace these things 
because it shows that the true strength is in you. May we not be a place that that looks down on illness and limitations and struggles, but that embraces them because we know that we are made whole in our weaknesses. And Lord, most of all, we ask that every single person in this room would be formed in you, that we would become like Christ in every way. This is a work that only the Spirit can do, as you say in your word. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the servant heart of these people. And I pray that you would continue to lead us into greater conformity in you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.